before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 91. As always, joined by the three amigos. We've got Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, Rich Diaz, Acorn Macro Consulting. What's going on, gentlemen? Rich, you're Me? back. Um, I'm back. I'm in Montreal for a little while. Um, it's it's really hot. <laughs> I forgot how horrible, horribly muggy it is. Uh, and I'm convinced that the Pierre Elliott Trudeau airport is basically a third world airport. It's a complete bordel and it's an embarrassment. But passport control was zippity do. So there you go. It was really quick through passport control, only so that people could wait for an hour and a half to get a car. <laughs> Did you fill your arrive can? No, I did not. It was great. No, genuinely. Normally, I complain about passport control in Montreal, but it was actually great. Uh, so you got to give them their credit. Although, to get your, to get my mother had to wait an hour and a half for the traffic to pick me up. So, you know. Anyway, that's me. Boring, old rich. Um, sunny. And yeah, Keith, what's going on in Halifax? Please. Listen, you know, I've, I've done some travel. Yeah, I did some traveling, uh, you know, as well. And I, I find passport control, both Canadian, U.S. side and even the European side, has been, it's been really good. So I haven't had any challenges, but you mentioned the Montreal airport, you know, being what word did you use to describe it? Third world. Third world. <laughs> just... <laughs> I, I think the, you know, in the, the German joke on the world has to be the Frankfurt airport. It's, has okay. anyone flown into Frankfurt before? Here's, then you know yeah, what I'm not... talking about. It's like a bus station. You, you land out in the middle of the oh, no, uh, Munich. Sorry. I was in Munich. Yeah. So. Frankfurt is, is a bit, is a bit sloppy. But uh, I'm not sure if there are any the air- great the airports in Europe are brilliant. London Heathrow is amazing. Um, I mean, it's the, one of the most important airports in the world and you're in and out in no time at all. So, yeah, not yeah. Frankfurt. It, it takes a while to get through that that puppy. Does anyone have really besides Rich, you know, in love with every airport except Montreal? <laughs> let, let us know if you have a really good airport experience because, it, you know, it, it's easy to beat on those guys, including the airlines, because you get one little one little trip up. And uh, off she goes. But we're happy. We're having a good uh, kickoff to July here. And you, Steve, what do you got yeah. there? Yeah, no, just uh, just back from God's country in uh, Lakeside uh, in Penticton there. It was super nice for the Canada long weekend. Uh, I was busy, you know, having a couple of drinks, watching the NHL free agency. So that was, uh, was a good time. Back into it. Like a good Canadian. Yeah. This, the king of Kinslano, hey? What a lifestyle. <laughs> like now you got the snow globe you're back eh <laughs> the snow yeah, globe is back R2, R2D2. r2d2 here again okay what do we got this week guys what do we got this week uh just a quick before we get into it is we've got our event in vancouver live events with so the tickets uh we appreciate everyone's support over halfway sold uh so we still got uh still got some more tickets left if you want to go check them out so again there'll be a link in the description below uh, where you can go and grab a ticket. You're going to see some sort of weird price. It's like 5437 And I promise you, we set it at $49.99, but there's all these weird Eventbrite fees and stuff in there. So um, the Looney Hour is unfortunately only pocketing $49.99. Uh, that gets you into the event, uh, complimentary drink, and a whole bunch of appetizers and whatnot. And of course, uh, live podcast Q&A should be a great time with uh, a whole bunch of the other Looney Hour people. And you get a, a chance to kiss Rich. So I, no. I want to get a whole bunch of photos of, for, for that night of people planting one on, on Rich's cheek there. I just want to know, does the event have air conditioning? <laughs> I'm told it will have air conditioning. Okay, because I'm dying for... here. My mom's air conditioning sucks. <laughs> she can probably hear me say that. <laughs> You're going to get the boot. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, as always open it up with, on the housing front. So we're, you know, now into July, we've got some of the June housing data coming out and this is kind of what people are now, you know, if you get gauge the sentiment online and Twitter, everyone's sort of gauging, okay, spring market, which is always historically your busier time of the year. We're now going into the summer months where it slows down. You tack on these rising mortgage rates over the past four or five weeks. And everyone's kind of like anticipating the slowdown. And so we're starting to see some of that in the Vancouver, Toronto data. 
so Toronto home sales on a seasonally adjusted basis, uh, declining. So that kind of strips out that volatility there. Um, you know, interesting enough, it's like, um, we're at, sales are actually up in the GTA 17% from last June. So it kind of goes to show you that like how bad, like basically the market froze last summer when Tiff Macklin was raising rates, you know, hundred basis points at a time. So we've kind of like unfrozen, but I think we're, we're, you know, again, starting to slow down. Um, new listings are trending higher. Inventory is still incredibly low, but picking up. And uh, it's a similar similar story in Vancouver. So sales up year over year, but you've got uh, new listings basically right back now, finally in line with their long-term 10-year average for the month. So keep in mind that in Greater Vancouver, for the first, first four, for four of the past six months, you've had 20-year lows in new listings which is insane. Uh, for the past six months, you've had 20-year lows in those things. We've now, for the month of June, had a normalization back in line with the 10-year average. Um, again, inventory is still low, but if that trend continues, which is, hey, sales kind of slow down moderately, listings start normalizing, picking back up slowly over time, that allows inventory to build. And as inventory builds, it puts pressure on sellers to reduce their prices. So uh, still way too soon to make any calls. Um, that's kind of what's happening in those two major markets. And then, of course, Calgary, which is that one market that continues to sort of buck the trend. Uh, record home sales uh, for the month of June. Home prices up for the past six consecutive months. So that's a market that continues to like not really be impacted by interest rates, at least not yet. Um, people forget. Everybody in Vancouver and Toronto, I think, has like this 10-year history of like, oh, Vancouver and Toronto, it's so expensive. And there was a time uh, in the early O's when Calgary real estate prices were more or less almost on par with uh, Vancouver, Toronto. It was, it, it like, was slightly wait, cheaper. Wait, 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 sorry. For price per square foot type thing? Uh, just in general, like resale prices. So like okay. the, the Vancouver and Toronto was always more expensive, but like the gap... It, it just blew out over the last 10 okay. years specifically. Because uh, like Van Calgary real estate basically actually peaked in like 07, went sideways for a number of years, and then peaked again in, in 2015 and basically has been a very flat market. So uh, it'll be interesting to sort of see how that market sort of shakes out. I have a, I have a question for you, Steve. Uh, in line with one of the themes we've talked about now for a while, what is happening in Calgary with, with population growth? Yeah, we actually, I mean, we had some data out last week. It was, uh, I think it was the largest. So in Alberta, Alberta's on track, Alberta, not Calgary, but Alberta population growth uh, is on track for the fastest population growth since 1914. Uh, so they're growing between, they're growing at about 4.6% um, yeah. right now. Actually, so. looking at the data in front of me, so in order of like uh, fastest growth is PEI <laughs> with almost 5%, but there's only like <laughs> 200,000 people who live there. And then it's Alberta with 4.6. There's about 4.7 million people. Then Nova Scotia, they just cracked a million with four and a bit. Yeah, and then New go. Brunswick. is going up, buddy. That's right. And then New Brunswick, which is a, about 800,000, and they're growing around 3.5. And then Ontario is next. They have 15.5 million people in Ontario, roughly, and that's growing at 3.5% too, which is absolutely, by the way, totally freaking nuts. And um, and then BC. So, they, yeah, those are the six provinces in, in that order with the highest population growth, Steve. Yeah, and I think Wait, like... To be fair to PEI, I think the population is 125,000. But what is the number? Oh, not a, not according to uh, Stats Canada in my research, but what are they showing? I could be wrong. What are they showing there for PEI? Population? It's closer to two hundred thousand. Okay, two hundred. So not five thousand. Yeah, yeah. You know. No, I said no, no. Said. no you misunderstood. You are hearing impaired. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is true. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, uh, think, I'll tell you the exact number. Anyways. Well, yeah, Sorry, I think there's a going. case to be made that like. Again, no, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend that I know where the real estate prices are going in the next five to 10 years, but I think there's been so much growth in Vancouver and Toronto. Like the numbers are just obviously not making sense. They have made sense for a while, but uh, more so in a higher interest rate environment, where I think there's a, I still think there's a strong argument to be made that you'll see Alberta real estate will arguably outperform. Uh, I think like BC and Ontario, I think could underperform, you know, you could see flat to no price growth for the next five, 10 years. And you see maybe modest price growth 
in, in that province, despite what's happening in interest rates. So I think that's kind of an, also in some important context that like, I know we always talk about like national markets, but like housing is very much like a region specific. Um, so, you know, I think that, uh, you know, that's kind of what we're seeing. Uh, the, Can I ask you, oh, yeah. sorry. Can I ask you a question, Steve? Uh, so I, so I retweeted this thing, which, uh, which I don't know if you, I wanted to get your view on this. I've been waiting all week where this gentleman retweeted sort of all of the paperwork necessary in order to fix up their bathroom. Uh, and I think that they went through some, like, right. I, I, so basically, so people who didn't know that he like listed the sort of six or seven different um, either paperwork or permissions or permitting that you needed in order to just basically uh, redo a bathroom. Can you, first of all, A, is that true? And B, how does it compare to places like Alberta, et cetera? No, I mean, I, that's 100%. I mean, I actually know the guy that, you know, tweeted that out. Uh, him and I have had quite a few conversations over the years, but uh, yeah, I mean, it kind of, kind of comes to the whole point that like the, the public sector and in, 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 I think in most part of Canada is just, it's so large and bureaucratic and that's the, it definitely, you know, in Vancouver, I think it's, I've told this, I, you know, I work day to day in the residential space. I tell most of my clients, like you do not want to build a new custom home in the city of Vancouver. Don't like 99.9% .9 of people should not build. Like, even if you have the money, don't build, like you're going to just, drive yourself insanely crazy it's it's so expensive to build there's so many layers of government it's basically like to build here start to finish it's going to be like a minimum two to two and a half year process because the first like almost year is just going to be like architectural dealing with the city getting the permits and then you're going to be at least another year to build it and compare that to calgary uh calgary permitting time will be approximately half half the time okay. as Vancouver. So and is your, there, Steve, is there any, you know, acknowledgement or recognition that <laughs> that's not an optimal environment, you know, to promote growth of any kind, or is it, you know, the perspective that, uh, you know, just, just the way society has moved over the last decade was that, you know, government knows best government needs to be involved and we will tell you how we're going to be involved. Like, didn't see what I mean? Yeah. What, what's well, I mean, you know, you know, to get like a parcel of land, like rezone for like an apartment building. So let's say you got a parcel and you got to, you want to rezone it and build, you know, five story apartment building or something. Like, you're going to be two to three years just on the rezoning process. And then you're going to be another, you know, at least another year on the, on the building permit development permit uh, process as well, year, year and a half. So that's why I say like it takes like, to, to start from finish, it's going to take you five or six years to build like a wood frame condo in, in, in the city here. So it's just, and that's where condos are steam still being built with wood frames. Where, where are you, you guys? Go high, you go high rise and that could be like an eight to 10 year project. Okay. So very quickly with this, then what is uh, one step that can be removed or added? You don't want to add anything, but you know what? you're in that space and you know myself and rich were not what can happen to make that to cut that time by 25 percent from two and a half down to say a year and a half year and three quarters i think they should have like an automated so i think my understanding is back in the 70s 80s they had this product called the vancouver uh so it was called the um the Van Vancouver special. And so basically it was just like this templated house where like they all kind of looked the same, but like if you had the drawings and like the, basically they rubber stamped it, it was like, yeah, you can build this, like this, this, this sort of plan, this house is already pre-approved. And so, I mean, I, I suppose that's one way and they're actually quite a popular house today, even, you know, 30, 40 years later, people love buying them and redoing them. Uh, Cause the floor plans are really good, but the problem basically with the city is like, and now it's funny because everybody now works from home. So it's actually gotten even worse because like what happened when you had a, when you had a permit request or, or you wanted to, to speak to somebody, you could go and stand in line at city hall for three hours. And eventually you get to the clerk at the front desk and you can talk to them and hash it out and get a, get an answer right there uh, with someone in your face. And now what happens is it goes and you send out an email and then the email they'll respond to you in seven days and then they'll forward your email to like somebody else's department. Then you got to wait another seven days. <laughs> and uh, so this is basically what happens is everyone just kind of passes the buck and it just kind of goes in this long daisy chain. And eventually someone will sort of 
get there. <laughs> it's honestly horrible. And that's that's uh, awesome. That getting, that just sounds like the, the Simpsons or something, right? It's well, so I'll yeah. get to this like whole like long story here and I will we'll switch conversations. Wait, here, wait, but... before we switch, I want to give the guy his, his due because he wrote a, his name. Sorry, Steve. His name yeah. is Avi Barzalia and it's at East Van Builder. And I would recommend you go check out his tweet. It's absolutely ridiculous. And to his credit, he puts all of the paper. He does a really great job. So sorry, carry on, Steve. I just wanted to give the guy. Hey, well, Rich, I mean, you, it, it basically Rich, wait, 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 Rich, you should steal his tweet and send no. it out. <laughs> I would we're not going to let that go. Some guy <laughs> did an unjust to Rich last week, so we're, we won't we let know that who go. you are. <laughs> Looney hour let's, people, get them. Let's move, get em. Yeah. No, let's move Anyways, along. Please. Please. Su- suffice, suffice to say, this is why, like when people do like renovations on their house, if it's a single family house in particular, a lot of people aren't getting permits now because they're just like, this is insane. I'm going to redo my kitchen and redo a bathroom and like. There's no way for you to know unless you're physically coming into my house. So it's more, it's somewhat of an honor system. And so at this point, your system is so insane. I'm just going to do it without a permit. Um, anyways, switching gears kind of on a s- similar topic is the, uh, the FCAC. So a lot of people weren't necessarily familiar with them. Um, it's the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada. Uh, but they sent out an issue to all of the national Canadian banks, uh, I believe it was yesterday, saying that they want the banks to strengthen policies to assist mortgage borrowers. So essentially, they issued a memo saying they want the banks to work on amortization extensions, waive lump sum prepayment uh, fees, and they want to they want banks to waive prepayment fees on distress sales, and then again waive interest on capitalized interest. So basically, uh, they don't want banks charging interest on top of interest for customers' mortgage balances that are negatively amortizing. Uh, so essentially, um, they want the banks to proactively work with borrowers. And this this is what we come to like this great big Canadian housing trade, which is artificially supported by almost all levels of government. Uh, You'll remember in the federal budget at the start of the year, Christopher Freeland specifically noted in the budget that they want Canadian banks to proactively work with people that have hit their trigger rates and and are feeling the stresses of, of their mortgage payments. So I'm not saying this is going to eliminate risks and foreclosures in the housing market because they're absolutely coming but it's pretty evident in policymakers that they're going to support this asset class to the best of their ability. <laughs> so, so you changes. talk about affordable housing, <laughs> um, you know, houses obviously get more affordable when you have price declines, but um, price declines also politically aren't, aren't that popular in terms of getting you reelected. So how would it work again? Just, let's just run through this. Say Rich needs, you know, Rich wants to leave, he doesn't want to live with his mom anymore. He wants to place with air conditioning, but he needs help. So how how is how is this going to work for Rich? Well, he needs help in terms of like it's more for people that already have a mortgage, right? So it's like okay, if Rich, 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 you know, bought a house during the depths of the pandemic. He took on a variable rate mortgage at one point two percent. He's now hit his trigger rate because the variables, you know, six percent or whatever. So he's effectively not even paying. He's not not only is he not paying any principal, but he's actually not even paying all of his interest payments. The banks are just tacking that on to his balance. So Rich's mortgage balance is not shrinking every month. It's actually growing. Um, and so it's gonna create this huge problem in two and a half years. And Rich goes to renew his mortgage. The banks are gonna say, Hey, buddy, you're you're you know, you gotta fit this new payment um under under your remaining amortization. So you're gonna have this massive balloon payment, basically. So the banks essentially are saying, okay, you know, legally we're only allowed to issue uh, on a new origination of 30-year AM, but your your amortization is now blown up to 70, 80 years. And you're telling me you got to fit that 80-year amortization on renewal back down to 25? I have, a, I have a comment and then a question for Keith. My comment is it wasn't my fault. I was told by the central banker, the most important central banker in Canada, that they were going to keep rates low for a very, very long time. And then my question for Keith is, Keith, how does this affect earnings for banks? Well, that, I mean, I would imagine, though, if if this if, if the banks are being forced to do this, they're actually being 
compensated for it somewhere in, in, in the back channels through through Ottawa. So at, at the end of the day, they socialize this cost. So I'd be surprised if the banks are actually taking it. But if the banks are taking it, then, you know, remember, banks are pretty smart. So they'll just simply tap it on to some other poor schmuck in another product, ex expensive investment management solutions or, or something like that. Um, I think you're seeing that, though, today on um, new mortgage originations. Like we talked about in this last week's episode, but what I'm seeing is the banks are aggressively raising mortgage rates. As So obviously bond yields have moved significantly over the last six weeks, but the banks have been extremely quick. Actually, significantly over the last four hours, the bond yeah. market is getting <laughs> mullered. This is Thursday, yeah. everyone. You know, we record on Thursdays and I mean, equities are getting, everyone looks at the stock market first, you know, it is what it is, but but the bond market is just being scorched earth here yeah. today. So you're just Canada, at 4%. Sorry. Canada yeah, yeah, and then bonds. tomorrow we, yeah, but then tomorrow we get the non-farm payroll number from the Americans. And if if that's a, you know, a strongish kind of number, you know, we, we could be looking at a pretty, yeah. Uh, you know, aggressive down day going into the weekend. See what what you say the five years at now? Yeah, it's at three three nine four. So the last the, the previous high, I guess, for this cycle was last October. It hit three eight four. Three eight four. And of course, obviously, you know, housing was extremely soft at that point in time. So now we're at three nine four. So you know, we can see mortgage rates based on today's move could move up again starting next week. So yeah, again, suffice to say, I think almost if this continues and holds, I think you could see almost all of your new mortgage originations having a six in front of it. And so I think it's, it's natural to conclude that should that hold, I think, yeah, you're going to see pressure on the housing market. Again, we're going to need inventory to build. Um, but at some point people, enough people renewing with a mortgage and with a six in front of it, it's, it's going to be a, it's going to be troublesome for a highly levered household highly levered economy, I think for that matter. All I wanted to add was that misery loves company. And um, we talked about other interest rate sensitive countries. Um, so what does that mean? It means countries that borrow at the short end of the curve. Sorry to repeat myself, but you know, we, and, and the same thing is happening in Australia down negative down 5% year on year. These are my lagging kind of crappy house price indicate indexes, but they're pretty okay. New Zealand down 10%, South Korea down seven, 7%, UK down four, Germany down another five or six, depending on how, which index you use. And all of these countries basically have the same issue, which is that, uh, ho homeowners and mortgage um, borrowers borrow at the front, mostly at the front end of the curve. Meanwhile, the U.S. <laughs> house prices index continues to rise. So, interesting how um, how it's what's going on. Yeah, I think on the Canada front, right, is like it. That's like the I can tell like the HPI on a national level is still showing like a year over year decline. I think a lagging indicator because everyone had the huge spring market uptick and then yeah. So, but again, I still think like moving forward, like again, a lot of this talk i think was okay you know mortgage rates were like last fall in canada they were about five and a half percent housing activity slowed into the new year we got rates down you got you know again you got mortgages with a 4.7 4.8 bank of canada went on pause so we had the, the housing market lifted and prices basically relifted almost back to their peaks of 2022 and of course, now all of a sudden, everyone's going, okay, well, hold on. The Bank of Canada is now off pause. Yields are surging higher once again, uh, now eclipsing last fall. And so, yeah, again, like I think the story and the narrative is starting to shift it in the market once again. So it's going to be interesting to see how the next three, four, five months play out. It's, it's kind of interesting because it ties in with, you remember last week we talked about uh, the four central bankers, you know, the, you know, the Europeans, the Brits, the Yanks, as the Brits would call the Americans, right, Rich? Yep. <laughs> yep. The Yanks. And then the Japanese, uh, remember we talked about how, you know, they were, they're all hawkish and they're focused on the labor market and stuff like that. But yet, you know, equity markets and credit markets specifically are telling everyone now we don't believe it and they're, they're going to stop hiking rates imminently. We don't believe them. 
And I think so, so I think that now it sort of ties into some of the data points we had out today. Maybe yesterday, maybe Rich can go through them. But you know, the overall summary here was that the data points out today is especially uh they're really strong. So the American numbers are suggesting the economy is still solid, and uh, which implies the Fed will continue to hike rates which implies that equity and credit markets are wrong, that they'll be, that they will stop hiking rates if you can follow sort of the, the, the data, the bouncing ball here. Uh, so that's why we have this you know, in, incredible risk off day right now. But risk, why don't you share with everyone uh, how strong some of these numbers were down in the yeah, US? Yeah, sure. So I mean, so my, one of my favorite words <laughs> is a diffusion index. And as people who listen regularly will know, there's uh, the most important one by far is the ISM, Institute for Supply Management. Um, it's out of Arizona, I believe. Anyway, so they do, last week they did the non, they did the manufacturing, which wasn't so hot, but um, I think it's important to remember that in the US, um, it's the services industry uh, is about 75% of the economy, about 65% or so of personal consumption expenditure. Canada's a bit less, but this number beat expectations. Remember, it's always about sort of the number versus what the market's expecting. And then it's also about whether the number is above or below 50, so expansion or contraction. And so the ISM non-manufacturing in, you know, in brackets services rose to 53.9. And that's important. So it's the direction, which is growing. It's the rate of change, which is faster than it was. But also, you know, it's important to look under the hood. So as Again, forgive me for repeating myself, but there's new orders, there's employment, there's suppliers, there's backlogs of orders, there's imports and sentiment. And, you know, a couple of very important um, in, uh, components were all growing. They moved from contracting to then growing. So we have better orders in the U.S., um, fa faster delivery times, better activity in production. So that's one. That's And then, you know, I mean, I won't go on and on, but it's basically a really solid number. And then another thing that just keeps on doing, again, okay, um, is the jolts came out. So the jolts fell down. So the job opening, <laughs> labor, uh, you always forget this damn acronym for Christ's sake. Job openings and no, now you excuse me. <laughs> Anyways, it's the job opening. So now there's you know 9.8 million jobs, but relative to the number of people unemployed, it's still a really, really strong number. So you know, we still have some of those issues. Car sales is another one that actually came out. All so there's car sales, you can have light trucks, um, you know, passenger sales, and then there's heavy trucks, and those are usually a, a decent coincident indicator for with how well the economy is doing. And that number beat well, it didn't beat, but it, it continued to accelerate. So um, tomorrow, Keith, you're going to let us know about how the Fed's going to interpret this. But tomorrow's the non-farm payrolls, right? It's the first Friday of every month. Very, And it's probably the second most or maybe the most important U.S. economic data. And, and Keith's going to tell us how that's what's going on with the Fed and how they're interpreting it. Because that was some minutes out, right, Keith? Uh, yeah, two separate things. So we had the Fed minutes came out yes, yesterday. And uh, we talked about this before as well. So, you know, these these are literally the, the minutes that the Federal Reserve crafted or basically what was said and agreed to during the last Fed meeting. So it's probably about four weeks old. Yeah. And from a, from a market perspective, you know, you want to figure out, okay, are, do the minutes reconcile with what was said in the official press release and also during the Q&A? And uh, to remind everyone at the last Fed meeting that, that the Fed did, uh, what do they call it? Not not a pause, a skip, right? It was a they, hawkish skip. <laughs> a hawkish skip, yeah. So they didn't uh, they didn't hike rates, but they paused and they strongly suggested they are going to hike again for the next maybe two meetings. And what happened when the minutes came out? Not only was there a unanimous agreement to pause, but over half of the participants said they would have agreed to a hike as well as a pause. So again, it was a, it was a very hawkish moment in uh, central bank world. And then, uh, so we have that combined, you know, with, with you know, the the ISM data that, that Rich just shared with us. So again, it, it's going down this path where central banks now, they, they want to continue hiking rates. Because remember, so we'll, we'll quiz Steve on this. What was the number one criteria a criterion that the central banks were talking about in Europe a couple of weeks ago? Climate change? I put you on the spot. I'm sorry, Steve. <laughs> oh, we're going to be banned. Um, Steve, no, it was Steve, the labor market. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was, it was the, the workforce. Market. Yeah, we have the labor market. So, uh, you know, and the only way to put a dent in that is to have job losses coming up. So, which leads into tomorrow's data point, which is, uh, you know, we call it the non-farm payrolls because what they coined it way back in, you know, back when I was a kid, back in the 30s and 50s and whatever. But, uh, you know, the, the premise then that that was more consistent, a better consistent number of of employment growth compared to f- the farming Fun. industry. Yeah. Which and military. Really they usually, sorry to interrupt you, but they usually exclude the military from that as well. Yeah, sure thing. So to give everyone, uh, last month's number was 339,000 new jobs. The estimate for tomorrow is 225,000. So, you know, growing slower than the previous month. So we'll see what the number comes is out. A, is this a Twinkie bet? Uh, yeah, we'll so then we pay up next week, right? So we'll do that. Okay, so One. the estimate is 225,000. Keith, go first. Okay, I think the number will come in at, at, at 330. What do you have, Rich? Damn, you always go first. You always screwed up. I'm going first next time. Um, mine's 315, I guess. Damn it. <laughs> Uh, it's auction for oh here's a good pickup line do you know what auction theory is because that's that's basically one of the things you learn i'm gonna go uh 225 100 what what is that that's steve's commission on on the number for the month i'm actually gonna go i'll I'll, I'll go i'll go i'll go on there just to keep it spicy 224 i like it (laughs) It's like the price is right, you know. One dollar, one dollar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is that the auction theory? That's what it is. No, but uh, there's different types of auctions. There's a Dutch auction. There's a normal auction. There's American auction, and it's important that you can, if you go first, it affects all the numbers that come after it. So, anyways, sorry, I just okay. nerded out there for a second. That's auction theory. <laughs> hey, Rich, I've got a question for you. Actually, when you kind of put all this together, because again, I feel like there's so many like. I know everyone, you know, listens to the show here. Everybody's got an opinion on, and you know, exactly what what's going to happen six, twelve months from now. Um, I do not. I think that my I've an opinion. I do. I, I have a strong opinion. <laughs> I mean, I've got a, an opinion. I still think, personally, like uh, again, I try to look at all different aspects of you know. There's so many people on Twitter. I think some really great research that's put out for free, and some some of my stuff I get that's paid, and and so I get a lot of pretty good intel. I think that comes across the desk, and you're kind of like, okay, you try to look at all the different angles, including Acorn Macro Research, free plug. Um, but it seems to me like I feel that CPI is coming off. Now we had Canada's CPI last week, which we didn't touch on last week. We forgot actually. Uh, you know, headline inflation came in at 3.4%. If you stripped out mortgage interest costs, which I know people say, well, you can't do that. We had headline CPI at two and a half percent. And then I see, okay, ISM prices paid still coming off, et cetera, et cetera. So there's an argument to be made now that people are saying, and it could, could be right, could be wrong, is that the base effects comps are becoming more difficult in the months ahead. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious, what's your personal view on, let's say, headline inflation over the next three to four months? Like, Because you, you've been right. I mean, you said six months ago that you said, hey, listen, our models are showing you know Canada's inflation getting down to 3% by the summer, and we're at 3-4 today. I think so, that there's... Yeah, so... That's a huge thing. I mean, the inflation. I thought you were going to ask me about whether or not the U.S. was going to slow down. That's what I thought you were gearing me up for. Me well, about. I mean, I think there's a lot of data that's. It's Positive? almost like yeah. I, I think macro just moves really slowly, and there's all it does. Like, it's lagging for sure. We're confl- always looking in the rearview mirror. To be yeah. fair, there's all this conflicting data. It's like, well, one data set says this, another data set says that, and everyone's basically arguing online about who's right and who's wrong. So on the inflation thing, I just think inflation, my view hasn't changed on that. I think inflation will come down. Headline will definitely come down. It'll be dragged by the base effects that you discussed. Those base effects include energy commodities, which is the fancy words of saying oil price, energy services, um, you know, different goods and stuff as people sort of have shifted and and sort of the supply chains 
um, issues get dealt with. And so the headline number, I think, will continue to go down. I also think the core number will continue to go down. But I think it's about what, like, you know, it's about this whole stupid transitory word. Do you think we will return to the the high one? 1.8 handle or back to twos, or do we think we're going to be structurally higher? And for me, that ultimately, when you're thinking about inflation, it's not about whether a headline will fall back to 2% or whatever. I think that will do. In my view, uh, Steve, I think it's about whether or not core will stay structurally higher. And people know that why I've said so. I'll do it really quickly, which is government deficits and tight labor markets. Um, you know, the, the, you know, all the, 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 Sorry, the issue with the IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, and and the supply chain decoupling, and so I think Steve, that's does that make sense? Does that sort of answer your question on the inflation bit? I mean, I think you and I share a similar view then, which is that you know, yeah, you probably arguably are in a structurally higher inflation environment in general. But Canada's different, though. I think that that's really important, right? So Canada does not have the same wage pressures that they do in. Um, in the U.S., right? Canada's wage growth is, let's say, two and a bit. U.S. wage growth is six and a bit because of, you know, people don't want to hear it, but be, again, because of population stuff, because of crappy productivity growth, um, on and on. Um, and so I think we can't, you, we, we got to sort of separate those two animals. The U.S. is arguably doing much, much better, I would argue, as an, as an economy than Canada is. And we know per capita GDP is declining in, in Canada, per capita GDP is rising in America. I think those are so we, it's important we don't sort of conflate those two things. Um, the other thing is that I don't think consumers in Canada are as have the same safety net. Debt to GDP ratios in Canada are 1.115 or whatever. In the US, they're 70. Um, you know, and debt service costs in Canada are at all time highs. So, sorry, excuse me, household debt service ratios that are all time highs. In the US, they're at 20 year lows. Um, so you add a couple, you stack a couple of these things together, and you're in a situation where, one, where I think one economy will do structurally much better than the other. So what, what do you think, Rich, is the, in the biggest risk for Canadians then, from a financial economic perspective, considering all, all the metrics that you just shared with us? I think the, the biggest risk is that there's a the, there's a global slowdown and things that keep our currency and our keep the game going disappear. So our terms of trade is directly related to oil price. If oil, if there really genuinely is a prolonged slowdown in the global economy, the oil price will collapse and Canada's basically, the thing that keeps Canada's terms of trade, even in remote respectability, which is oil, will collapse. I think if there's a severe slowdown in economic growth globally, I think immigration will slow down. And we've complained about immigration a lot, but the fact is if, if people come to your country, your country will grow. Um, and if that slows down, I mean, if you think retail sales are bad now, imagine if a million people didn't show up tomorrow. Um, and then there's the pro-cyclical issue of, the, of, those, of those credit issues. So I think Canada is very, very sensitive to the external world, something Keith, you've mentioned many, many, many times. And Canada has shit productivity growth, um, which is just something I've gone on and on about. Um, does that sort of answer your question, Keith? Yeah, but uh, yeah, I agree with that as well. I mean, uh, I, I think I've been sharing my view now for a while, and I like to say I haven't been right yet. <laughs> no, I don't mean it. I think come on across the right way. It's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And what I mean by that is it's inevitable that we're going to experience a, a slowdown here coming up. And, you know, and I said this before, that the challenge for Canadians and Canadian policymakers, if any of you guys are listening here right now, if we do get that slowdown or a hard landing, no one's even thinking about that. I mean, the Bank of Canada is saying, no, no, no recession. I know Ottawa has forecasted never to have a recession ever again in the next decade and, and all that. But if, if we do have that coming up and the economy has become so reliant upon uh, a strong banking, which is a, a credit lending sector, if we get a recession that comes out of Bay Street instead of a, a regional recession from, say, Alberta and the energy producing provinces, uh, we, we won't know what hit us because we haven't experienced that before. And, you know, it's going to create a, a lot of, you know, dislocation. So we have to look around the world and, and say, hey, what, what's happening? What is the potential here for this to trip up? Which sort of leads us, talking of trips, I think we discussed earlier, it's on the news that, uh, so the, the head of the U.S. Uh, 
the, the Finmen for the U.S. with so Janet Yellen, she's heading to China today or tonight for meetings, which I think it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that she's arriving there just at the exact same time that the Chinese are experiencing an incredible amount of stress on, on their banking system and, and a U.S. dollar uh, need for, for cash and so forth. Remember, everything is is connected here. So I, I do think that we are getting you know increasingly closer to something happening. And, and, and Steve, I think you mentioned this there a few minutes ago. You know, may, maybe the risk for Canada that sort of trips us up it is an external event. And that's what it's increasingly looking like. Yeah, I just think like everybody seems to have this sort of linear approach to the economy, right? Everyone's like, oh, you know, it, uh, whatever, the ADP jobs or, or ISM service, like everyone's just extrapolating that, you know, you're going into this, this soft landing. So interest rates are going to stay higher for long. Like everyone just, nobody ever really source, I guess, sees. There's always some sort of financial event typically, well, but, right, Keith? I mean, as yeah. you go into these very, very aggressive rate hiking cycles, I mean, that... So even but, within Canada, so the, the financial event we have coming up now is that there, there's going to be a ton of mortgages that will be up for renewal, like from that from that 2000 trough, you know, that that is coming up. Everyone on, say, a three-year cycle. Uh, you know, I, I was chatting with a, a gentleman yesterday you know, in, in the, not quite GTA area, but a little bit south of that, maybe you'd call it. You know, we're just, you know, and, and you know, he and his family, they're, they're very uh, conservative f- fiscally. Like they, they, they spend when they have it and they don't have it. They, they watch it, but he's just commenting that like his mortgage payments have increased. Uh, I'm going to say about 800 bucks a month o- over this cycle. Now he, now his actual payment hasn't changed, but he's been putting aside that what it would have increased by if his variable mortgage wasn't structured that way. But just commenting in general, he said, you know, they used to go into uh, the city, a hotel was 250 bucks a night. Now the same hotel is 500 plus. You know, they go out and grab a, a burger and a sandwich and maybe a drink each. That used to be a, you know, a $50, $40, you know, evening. Now it's 120 bucks. And you keep coming down to it. If rates continue to, to go higher, which is what the Bank of Canada is telling us what they're going to do, um, and then you get job losses on on top of that, it just becomes less money available in the aggregate economy, and it has to show up somewhere, right? It, it's it's going to come here, and um, you know I, I think the real risk area for financial markets it's going to be the corporate debt markets and and even banks i mean i'm looking at uh i think with scotia bank stock this morning and this is not a suggestion either to buy or sell sell it but it you know it's now getting closer and closer you know to going back to the lows of the 2000 sort of the 2020 uh market event so what watch bank stocks you know they are signaling to us that things are getting weaker and we should be on the earnings cycle for banks coming up shortly, See, which we get to look at. What's our favorite metric for the banks? Loan loss provisions. Yeah, yeah loan loss. Look at that one. Keith, yeah, but I think you've kind of just like summarized. It's just like, I think sometimes we just end up overcomplicating it, which is like, oh, this this survey, this household survey, this metric. And it's like, okay, like I, I think you can just extrapolate and say, listen, if everyone's mortgage payments are going up by a thousand bucks a month, 500 bucks a month, 1200 bucks a month, extrapolate that across, you know, all these households, give it time. It's going to be, you know, I always like laugh because like the, you know, the BMO guys were out, uh, you know, the one of their economists, I don't know, two, two weeks ago, but like, Hey, it looks like housing data is still like house prices has been going up. This is like bank account. I need to keep raising rates. And it's like, again, like you actually like dig through it. And it's like, well, they, they've been going up because you've had 20 year lows and new listings. It's like, it's not really a market that's booming. Like it's just, it's just, it's interesting because I just think that kind of missing the forest for the trees. Well, well that's a th- I think I think it's a really important point. And and I, I when you say you don't want to overcomplicate, I love overcomplicating things. Um, and one of the ways I do that is by always thinking about sort of how is I. Is that why your 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 dates are a bit of a lower number? Definitely, than that be. is definitely yeah. one of the, that's what I thought. that is definitely one of the reasons. But one one of the things I try to do which is hard, obviously, it's a thought experiment, you know, how could it be wrong? So I've been quite negative on on global growth, I've been probably too early to it. 
as many strategists are prone to do. Um, and one of the things that I often forget is just how strong the U.S. consumer is. And, and the U.S. consumer is more, you know, is the 75 percent or whatever the U.S. GDP is the most important consumer in the world. And that the fact that they have a couple of things lining up for them is a, is a way that maybe all of this they might the world might just be able to ride this sort of, I don't know, animal, donkey. What, what do they ride in America? Pickup truck? The American pickup truck just for a little bit longer. The Did lack of debt. Donkey? People riding donkeys <laughs> in America? Uh, no, I'm just saying, like, you know, the if the U.S. house consumer is as strong as it as I might, as I presume it is to be, which is household debt, debt servicing, wage growth, unemployment, um, lots of labor shortages, you know, um, house price growth going up, wage effects from the stock market. You have a situation where if it just muddles along, it'll be very difficult for the global economy to materially slow. And, you know, that's and if but if that's true, you have a situation where the Federal Reserve will continue to feel the need to, to raise rates. And ultimately, you know, the reason I think people like me are just very worried about global growth is because, you know, the yield curve, you know, there's a great expression, you know, a, um, cycles don't die of old age. They're murdered by the Fed. And the reason Ben Bernanke said that is because he he knows he's watched cycles for, you know, despite his many misgivings about quantitative easing, the guy's a smart guy and understands cycles. And his point is what Keith alluded to earlier, which is the Fed is focused on the labor market. And until they see weakness in the labor market, they're going to continue to raise rates. If you raise rates long enough, you eventually get credit events. If you get credit events, you get capitulations. Right, but in the labor, hold on, labor and very good point. But labor data is also the most lagging of indicators. Ding, ding, ding. That's the, the game that we're all sort of playing. And so that's the trick, right? So people argue, for example, there's yeah. a guy on Twitter who's, you know, he's been bitching about how the, the ECB is super, super hawkish and continues to be. And yet the data out of the East, out of Europe is horrible. The IFO is down, Centex Intimate down. The uh, There's a thing called the Citigroup Economic Surprise Index, which is the lowest it's been in like 10 years. And yet the ECB comes out and says, well, we want to be hawkish because the labor markets are, are, are okay. So Steve, you're hundred percent right. I, and, this yeah, is... and again, I think that comes down to like the, the, the political aspect of central banks right now, which is like, right. They, they messed up so badly, particularly over the last couple of years, that there's all this political pressure on like, you can't be seen cutting rates with jobs numbers that are still coming in above expectations. You cannot be seen exactly. as the person that's, so you have to almost wait for that data to deteriorate. So you have the air cover to politically start cutting rates. I think very well said. I don't know, Keith, if you agree, but I think that's really well said. I agree with it. I mean, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say something that may not be well received by some people, but um, sometimes you, you can have overemployment. Now, I think that's clearly the case. And let's you can, let's, sure. let's use yeah. Let's, so let, let's use the barista example. And um, <laughs> what do you mean? Uh oh, you know, a, a barista. <laughs> I, in my opinion, it, it's a skilled job. You know, to make that nice coffee that you want in the morning, you have to be able to know what you're doing and stuff like that. As well, some of these coffee shops are incredibly built busy. So not only do you have to be make a quality drink for someone, but you you got to juggle them. Like you're you're just working you get so lemon fast loaf. to get things out. And then you want a lemon loaf, of of course. And uh, but not just at Starbucks though, but like at any of these other places. And I was just traveling. It was just shocking how low the skill level was at the some of these baristas and people might say like rolling their eyes oh come on here but the, the point is that a, a lot of jobs now that people are just starving to get get someone in there and so you end up so this is the way the cycle works and it's the way it should work as well it's the capital markets and an efficient economy that you know eventually you're, you're paying a lot of money on wages and salary and benefits for someone that's not doing a you know not producing a, a great output and eventually your, your product or service will suffer, then you lose business and it happens on an aggregate level and it, and it just rolls over. So I, I think, so that's clearly the level we're at today. So with overemployment, so when the Fed says, yeah, we're watching labor markets, when the ECB says we're watching labor markets and, and on and on, like they, they really do want job losses. And I, I think Steve or Rich, when you guys mentioned earlier, the ISM data uh, earlier for the goods sector was 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 weakish, you know. Very weak, we're, yeah. Yeah, forty six point three or whatever. Yeah, 
Yeah, not a diffusion index. That's that's not good. It's not growing. Uh, services is still positive, and and all those numbers there. So that's that's kind of the barometer that you look and feel for. So it's it's there. Uh, do you guys want to move along to the yeah. bill C eighteen? Because we had uh, Professor Geist on there a few days back. I think we're getting a, a continuation of of his views uh, over the last. 24, 48 hours as well. Yeah. If you haven't heard uh, the episode with Professor Geis, we had him on. He's sort of an expert on, uh, I, what, Rich, what do you say? Internet, internet law, internet sort of censorship. Like it's, uh, that's his whole, that's his whole shtick. That's what he does. Yeah. He's a professor at University of Ottawa and he, he graciously gave us some time sort of explaining two sort of bills that are getting either passed or already passing or whatever and their effects on Canadians. And he, I, in my view, he was quite nuanced. (laughs) I was hoping he'd be a bit more. meaner but he wasn't he was nuanced and and yeah steve he talked about bill c18 and and sort of the concerns with that as well i believe well yeah and then of course uh you that's know, because... it that's all you're gonna lead with Jeez, what do you yeah, mean? You really... i thought you were gonna go <laughs> yeah you, you tee this one up buddy it's your this is your stick okay. yeah well you know i'm very interested though in i have a i carry a sharp stick with it with it as well i have a strong view on it but it's not just in canada but the, the, the amount of uh, political government interference in in free speech across different platforms, whether it's traditional media or, or social media, uh, whether you can see it or not, I think it's quite obvious, but it has been throttled over the last number of years. And a lot of that is now starting to come to light, specifically when, when Musk bought Twitter and he started opening that up. And again, you can agree or disagree. If you disagree, you're, you're just wrong. But with the Bill C-18, I mean, one of the main premises with it is that if you're Google or you're, you're Facebook or Meta, I think they changed their name to, uh, which covers Instagram as well. If, if they want to feature in their news stream a Canadian content provider, then you know they have to compensate that provider. So pay CBC, pay Bell Media and stuff like that. Uh, so they simply said, well, we just won't list it. We we won't allow Canadians access to any Canadian generated news. And so that's what they've done. And it set off, uh, you know, people are running through Ottawa now with their hair on fire trying to get this fixed. And it's exactly what, you know, Professor Geis was, uh, he's been writing and, and tweeting about quite a bit. But something that maybe people don't realize is that uh, I saw here earlier, 45% of Canadians get their Canadian news content from Facebook, Instagram, and, and Google. So basically half of Canadians are now, in theory, are being shut off from getting their Canadian news content. But they can still go directly to get it, of course. But, I mean, who does that anymore? I, I know Rich doesn't have a local mail subscription, right? <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> you do Take not. Take that back. We want, we want the globe back. <laughs> that, that's a legacy joke of course for looney hour people if you know it but what else is happening here uh so yeah. read, uh well, I mean, two other but two, he, uh, post media and another company northstar they're having merger talks uh bell media a, they're talking about downsizing their local distribution so the amount i, I can see the canadian government's perspective in that canadian generated news content it, it is declining in, in, in quantity and the availability to get it. So I, I understand what they're trying to do. However, the market forces are stepping in saying, hey, that ain't going to work. And maybe it's a great opportunity for the Looney Hour to put on a uh, like a nightly newscast. Oh, I don't think we need that. Maybe. I understood one of the reasons that the these large companies are particularly vexed about this is purely just from an unfunded live like unknown liability perspective if i'm not mistaken right in theory if a if they have to pay for every click through uh and a story goes particularly outside some normal viral you know goes six sigma there's you know massively outside the normal range of 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 shares they're the amount of money that they would have to pay would soar astronomically and they would have no way of a modeling it b like hedging that exposure and uh, you know, and see, it's it's just it's 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 nonsense. That that's like, wh- how could you force a company to take a completely uncoverable uh, or unmodelable liability? And sorry, that was one of the things that I really resonated what, with me, Steve. What's Professor Geis's uh, tweet there? You want to tee him up? 
I got to find it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, he's he's been on this, right? He said, by relying on mandated payments for links, B Bill C-18 is deeply flawed and stopping ads won't change much. Rather than pursuing ways to get Google to contribute, which is by paying higher taxes or funding issuers directly, you know, the government's been talking about um, a, a tax on democracy, which of course is a stupid hyperbole that adds nothing to nobody. Uh, the reality is, is loads of the experts have been talking about this for a long time, Mr. Geist aside. Um, and exactly what they said was happened would happen. And the government and their infinite wisdom ignored them. Keith, I don't know if you want to add. Well, just to jump back on that. So yeah, in, in response for those not following along at home, the government, the Canadian government is now suspending its advertisements on Facebook and Instagram uh, in response to Meta's plan to permanently end news availability on its platform. Um, and I think the Canadian government... Um, so the the largest share of government spending on social media is uh, via Facebook and Instagram. So the Canadian government spent eleven point four million on Facebook and Instagram, accounting for more than half of its total social media expenditure, and it spent eight point eight million on uh, Google um, during that time during the fiscal 2021-2022 period. So they're basically saying, okay, we're not gonna we're gonna stop of advertising through your platform so anyways i guess the the canadian government's trying to get in a, a tit for tat with uh two of the largest tech conglomerates but it's also from a, a fiscal perspective because that, that should help improve our deficit somewhat <laughs> <laughs> no 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 i oh, mean like the, the reality is it's, it's funny because americans i mean canadians have this really weird we absorb sort of the political zeitgeist in America, you know, when it suits us, because I remember a couple of years ago, there was all this talk of net neutrality in America. And the CBC wrote article after article defending net neutrality, prevent uh, saying, you know, it was bloody screaming bloody murder that Donald Trump, who I'm not a fan of uh, his FDI FCC chair, who he appointed was sort of going to end net neutrality. Uh, I'm not going to get into that whole thing. But my point is, and then now in the last six months, basically, the federal government has done two things that are directly contradict the net neutrality. And net neutrality is basically the ability or inability for a government to throttle information. So where the, uh, so, you know, if you, or if you go online, if you go keithnews.com, you should get it. And the government has done two things, Bill C-11 and Bill C-18, which ultimately are an issue that directly go against some of the tenants, not all, but some of the tenants of net neutrality in America. And it's amazing the degree to which sort of the hypocrisy in where, you know, news media should be defending this quote unquote net neutrality. And they're, they're just, they're absent from that conversation. That to me is very frustrating. Well, I don't know. there you go. We can move on, I guess, before we get, oh, I mean, on the good, <laughs> on the, on the good news to wrap it up, Rich, we had, uh, province of Ontario is oh, yeah. uh, announcing that they are in the works of expanding the their nuclear facilities to actually have the largest nuclear facility in the world larger than is that right that sounds that sounds wrong but if it's right it's no, right it sounds amazing I'll tell you right now it's uh if it's in the media it must be true this is from <laughs> CBC News so there you go I mean it's got to be true uh, Ontario wants to expand Bruce Power, Canada's first new large-scale nuclear build in three decades. Um, so basically the goal here is apparently this power plant, again, could be wrong. It's CBC News. It says uh, 30%, it's, it's responsible today for about 30% of their uh, their power in, in Ontario. And so they're looking to ramp it up to, uh, to become the largest nuclear facility in the world. It's going to be larger than the one they have in Japan at the moment. Well, I think that's awesome. Everyone who knows me knows I love nuclear power. Maybe it's because of the years watching The Simpsons. But Canada, and just for context, by the way, in 1970, Canada had 0% nuclear power as a percentage of electricity production. It rose to a peak of 20% in 1994 and is now down to a 15-year low of, of 14 or so. Um, yeah, we, so and remember, remember last week we talked about Spain and Sweden? Sorry, Steve. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just saying, yeah, so the, the, the plant's eight reactors currently have about 6.2 gigawatts of capacity and supply 30% of the province's power, um, and so they're looking to ramp that up. Cool. I so approve. maybe next week we'll have a bit more details on where, um, you know, is this being driven from a provincial 
yeah. level or is it coming from from ottawa because I'm, I'm a bit confused truthfully if it is coming from ottawa because i didn't think that was uh nuclear what was, was on their safe list so uh but this this is a this is a, a great development from a power and efficient power perspective so how about maybe next week we'll have a bit more information on yes. it and then and we so can it's just currently producing 6.2 gigawatts of capacity they want to add an additional 4.8 um so that's what is that 11 11 gigawatts of capacity uh that would that'd be larger than japan's i'm not even going to try to pronounce it kashiwazaki karira plant uh which produces uh eight gigawatts of capacity so it would be substantially larger than japan's there Cool. And what did it state the time frame for it to be built? How many years? Uh, well, it says, I mean, again, with Canada, I mean, with all the permitting process, probably take it a couple of decades, but um, it sounds like they're in the process of actively studying it. So, again, studying, permitting, it's going to take time. But I think more importantly, it's around the positive discussion that this is being pushed forward. Um, you know, Rich has been quite vocal on the show about uh, some of the policymakers out there that are skeptical, you know, talking about carbon free and, you know, world without having nuclear just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, Steve, as they say, you can't take the second step if you don't take the first step. (laughs) So the first step is study. Second step is get your permits. And then Uh, eventually build it. (laughs) Then maybe get a bill. (laughs) Then you pour the money. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's uh, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. We've got our Twinkie bet for next week. Um, so your non-farm payrolls coming out tomorrow. I'll look for that number. The number, Keith, you said it was two hundred twenty-five thousand. So that's the uh, that's the estimate. We'll see who's right, who's wrong. Um, again, want to remind everyone for the Vancouver event, July twenty-seventh. Tickets are going to be in the link in the description in the show notes below. Um, so go check that out. Uh, like I said, we're about 60% sold. So I'd love to move the last bit of those tickets there. We appreciate everybody's support as always, and we'll see you next week.